Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com premium. It only costs $5 a month. Today's podcast is sponsored by Raycon. With Raycon, you get the same high-quality audio as with other premium brands, only at half the price. So go to buyraycon.com gold to get 15% off your order. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Mint Mobile. With Mint Mobile, there's no trapping you into a two-year contract or opening the bill to find all those crazy fees. Get premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month and no unexpected plot twists at mintmobile.com gold. We finished a very volatile week on Wall Street on a down note with the Dow closing down 630 points on Friday, a bit off the low. At one point, the Dow was down better than 700 and 80 points. It seems that every time I record a podcast on the weekend, I'm talking about a big down Friday with the potential of a bigger decline on a Monday. I keep talking about another Black Monday. Of course, now we are in the month of October when all the big historic stock market crashes have occurred. Yet every Monday, we seem to avoid the big drop, including last Monday. We actually had a strong rally on Monday and again on Tuesday of last week. In fact, the Dow was up 1,591 points during the first two days of the week. And a catalyst on Monday was actually the fact that the Bank of England had to step up and prevent a potential financial crisis in the UK based on a blow up in the pension system. I went over that on the live podcast that I did on Monday. But what that really did was finally get people on Wall Street to recognize that the Federal Reserve is probably in the same predicament or will soon be as the Bank of England having to choose between a financial crisis and fighting inflation. Well, the Bank of England already made its choice and it chose to fight the financial crisis. Inflation be damned. And I think the Federal Reserve, despite its tough rhetoric, is ultimately going to make the same choice. And I think based on the perception that that choice is looming, you got that big rally on Monday. And in fact, the Tuesday rally was even bigger. On Tuesday, the Dow closed up 826 points. And the catalyst there was a shockingly bad jolts report. What the jolts shows is the number of job openings on the month. That's how many jobs employers are looking to add. And the expectation was for 11.15 million, which would have been a slight reduction from the 11.239 million the prior month. Now, the prior month's number was revised a bit lower to 11.17 million, but the August number collapsed all the way down to 10.053 million. That is the biggest one-month drop in the jolts ever outside of the COVID lockdown. There was a month in 2020 when it was a bigger decline, but that was an abnormal time period. So this was the biggest drop during normal times, if you can describe what's going on right now as normal times. And when the markets saw this number, there was a huge rally. Why was this so exciting for the markets? Because everybody believes the key to the Fed's inflation fight is unemployment. 
that the Fed needs higher unemployment to reduce inflation. And the fact that the job market is weakening, that is the good news that investors are looking for. And so we saw a big move up in the stock market, a big move up in gold, a big move down in the dollar. All the computer algorithms immediately reacted to this report on the health of the U.S. labor market. But again, this is a fallacy that inflation can be tamed by creating unemployment. It can't because inflation is not created by employment. So if people working doesn't cause inflation, putting people out of work won't solve inflation. In fact, if anything, and I've explained this on the podcast, people productively employed helps counter the effects of inflation because it increases the supply of goods and services because those workers are making something. They're helping to produce a good. They're providing a service. If those workers are no longer on the job, presumably fewer goods are being made, not as many services are being offered. And so if you want to buy some of those goods or those services, you're going to pay more money because the supply has gone down. If the demand is the same or if the demand is going up because of money printing, then you get an even bigger increase in prices. So this is fantasy that higher unemployment is going to reduce inflation. But that's what everybody believes. And that's what the Fed believes. And so that's all the markets care about is how the Fed is going to react. And so if the Fed is convinced that a rise in unemployment is what they need to reduce inflation, to the extent that they see weakness in the jobs market and that portends an increase in unemployment, well, then maybe the Fed will feel that its work is done and it can back off on the rate hikes. Cold water was thrown all over that theory over the last couple of days where the Dow Jones dropped better than a thousand points since its two-day rally that started the week. And the big catalyst for the decline today was not only the worse than expected non-farm payroll number. And by worse than expected, I mean better than expected in that the unemployment rate went down. But that good news is bad news when you're hoping for an increase in the unemployment rate. But also what the markets did not get on Friday or Thursday was confirmation from any of the FOMC members that they are moving closer to a pivot like their colleagues at the Bank of England. In fact, if anything, the FOMC members continued to talk tough about fighting inflation, how inflation is still too high. They still have a lot of progress to make. They still have to keep on raising interest rates. They are laser focused on fighting inflation and they're not deterred by the prospect of a financial crisis here the way they almost had one in the UK. And so since the markets didn't get confirmation to that suspicion that maybe we were getting closer to the peak in rates and closer to the first cut, that was negative for the markets. But I think the biggest problem on Friday was the September jobs report. So let me get into the details of that report. The consensus was for about 250,000 jobs to be added during the month. And we didn't beat it by that much. The increase was 263,000. The number that I think really spooked the markets was the unexpected drop in the unemployment rate, which went from 3.7% 
all the way down to 3.5%. So it's headed in the wrong direction if you're hoping for higher unemployment to put an end to the rate hikes. This means that the Fed is even further away from its goal if its goal is to vanquish inflation by creating more unemployment. So as soon as this number came out, the markets tanked. Not only did the stock market go down, gold went down, the dollar went up, because again, this means the Fed is going to raise rates more and they're going to have to stay higher for longer in order to drive unemployment up to drive inflation down. And one of the reasons that the unemployment rate went down was because more people left the labor force and are therefore no longer counted as unemployed. Labor force participation went down from 62.4 to 62.3. And so that means some of the people who were looking for work threw in the towel. They decided they no longer want work. They're not part of the labor force. And so that brings the unemployment rate down. But having fewer people in the labor force puts additional upward pressure on wages because after all, there's a reduced supply of workers. And so if you're a company and now you want to hire somebody and there's not as many people in the job market, then you may have to pay higher wages. And so that's also a negative for the markets that are worried about wage price inflation. But again, that's incorrect. Rising wages don't cause prices to go up. Rising wages are prices. Wages are the price of labor. And so the price of labor goes up for the same reason that the price of goods goes up, and that's because of inflation. The inflation doesn't come from the private sector. It doesn't come from workers. There is no spiral. There's just the government. The government sets the whole thing in motion. The government inflates the money supply, and the result is that prices go up, whether they're the price of goods or the price of labor. Everything goes up as a result of the inflation that the U.S. government creates. And so far, the government has virtually made no headway in its battle against inflation. The Fed is no closer to returning inflation to 2% than it was when it still had the Fed funds rate at zero. Even if we get a slight reduction in the headline inflation rate from the 8.5% or whatever the last print was to something somewhat lower than that, that still is not going to bring the Fed any closer to its goal. Because despite all of these rate increases, interest rates remain negative. Even the yields on the six-month, one-year, two-year U.S. Treasuries, which are all north of 4%, are still negative when you're looking at 8% inflation. And you are not going to fight inflation with negative real interest rates. Remember, the most important thing about fighting inflation with rate hikes is changing people's behaviors, changing their savings and their spending habits. But the Fed has not done anything to alter those habits. Americans are spending as fast as ever. They're borrowing as fast as ever. In fact, if you look at the most recent revision to the savings rate, which was contained in the last revision to GDP, the household savings rate has now collapsed to its all-time record low. By the end of the second quarter of this year, the savings rate was all the way down to 3.4%.
And in fact, I'm sure it's lower than that now as Americans continue to deplete their savings. Not only is this bad news because it indicates that American households are in worse shape to weather the recession, but it also flies in the face of the comments made by Jerome Powell when he assured everybody that the reason the U.S. economy was so strong, the reason it could withstand higher interest rates was because households were so flush with savings. Well, the facts completely belie the assertions made by Jerome Powell. Not only don't households have high savings, they have record low savings, proving once again that whenever Jerome Powell says something, he either is completely wrong or is flat out lying. But not only are U.S. households rapidly depleting their meager savings, they're also racking up debt. We got the consumer credit numbers also on Friday, and the increase in credit card debt was $17.2 billion. That is the second biggest monthly increase ever in credit card debt. The record was actually set this March when credit card debt went up by $25.9 billion. So consumers are spending like crazy. They're draining their shallow savings pool, and they're piling on more credit card debt to buy stuff. This is not how you fight inflation. If the Fed was successful in fighting inflation, savings would be going up. Credit card use would be going down. You have to stop people from spending to bring inflation down. And you have to encourage them to save. Because when you have more savings and less spending, two things happen. One, the reduced demand for goods helps bring down the price of goods. But the increased supply of savings results in more capital investments and more production of goods to bring up the future supply of goods. So by raising interest rates high enough to encourage savings and discourage debt and consumption, then you end up fighting inflation. But the Fed has not done that. Yes, the Fed has raised interest rates, but not enough to bring them into positive territory. And you're not going to encourage savings with negative interest rates. You're still punishing people for saving with negative interest rates. You're not going to discourage people from borrowing when they can borrow money at a rate that's lower than the inflation rate because they're being paid to borrow. Contrast that to what happened with Paul Volcker in 1980 when short-term interest rates went all the way up to 20%. The highest inflation got was 13.5%. So you're talking 6.5% real interest rates. That encouraged people not to spend money because if they saved their money instead of spending it, they could buy a lot more in the future because the interest that they were earning greatly exceeded the inflation rate that they were expecting. So it made sense to defer consumption because by saving now and spending later, I could buy a lot more stuff because I could spend the interest that I earned. Now, with a lot of people saving to earn that interest, now you have more money available for businesses to borrow to invest in more productive capacity. So that's why those higher interest rates worked. But what the Fed has done will not work 
because interest rates are still negative. So people are still going to spend money as fast as they can. Why hoard it and spend it in the future? Because the interest that you're going to earn is nothing compared to the increase in prices. And in fact, most Americans are still earning nothing on their savings accounts because those interest rates haven't moved up. Now, yes, they can buy treasury bills and get 4%, but 4% is nothing. If prices are going to go up by 8%, you'd be dumb to put your money away to earn 4%. Just spend the money right now. Buy stuff before the prices go up. And so if we're not going to bend that curve and alter behavior, you're not going to fight inflation. And of course, if we're not going to get an increase in the savings rate, businesses don't have money to borrow. And in fact, the savings rate is plunging. So the Fed is not going to make any headway in fighting inflation until we see a meaningful increase in the savings rate and a meaningful reduction in the amount of consumer credit. And that's not going to happen unless we get a real increase in interest rates, much bigger than we've seen now. But that is impossible because the Fed cannot do that without creating a financial crisis. And if they do create a financial crisis, or if we are poised on the precipice of such a crisis, we already know what the Fed's going to do. They're going to do exactly what the Bank of England did. They're going to do exactly what they've done in the past when presented with a financial crisis. They will always choose inflation over financial crisis, and they're going to make the same choice again. Yes, right now they can bluff. They can pretend that they're going to fight inflation no matter what. That's because the no matter what hasn't happened yet. And in fact, look what happened with the stock market rally. As soon as investors anticipated that the Fed may be considering a pivot, we had this huge rally in the stock market, and therefore the Fed had no reason to pivot based on the markets because the rise in the stock market based on the anticipation of a pivot, in effect, takes the pivot off the table. What has to happen is the markets have to throw in the towel on their expectation for a pivot. The stock market needs to crash, and the crash of the stock market may in fact bring on the pivot. So if investors really want to pivot, they can't buy stocks in anticipation of that pivot. They have to dump stocks expecting no pivot, and then they'll get the pivot. Of course, it's not just a stock market crash that could be the catalyst for a pivot. It could be something happening in the bond market or any other part of the economy. You never know what that catalyst is going to be. The only thing you know for sure is that that catalyst is out there, and that's why the Fed can't really fight inflation. It can't admit that, so it has to pretend. So it is raising interest rates, but not by enough to do the job. But ironically, one of the only things the Federal Reserve has accomplished with its rate hikes is its increased costs that businesses absorb and ultimately pass on to the consumer because all businesses have debt and now that debt is more expensive to service and that's just another cost, just like raw materials, just like labor. And so those higher interest costs have to be factored in to consumer prices and they are helping to push prices higher. So every time the Fed raises interest rates, it's raising costs. It's just like workers getting a raise or raw material prices going up. It is putting upward pressure on consumer prices. The same thing with rents. You're a landlord. You own some apartment buildings. You also have some debt. Your interest costs are going up. How do you recover that? You raise your rents and your tenant ends up paying the higher interest rates 
in the form of higher rent, just like any other costs that are going up. The tenant has to cover those costs for the investment to be worthwhile for the landlord. So the Fed is actually moving further and further away from its goal of fighting inflation. I've been listening to a lot more music lately, and it's been great. And one of the reasons it's been great is because I've been listening with my Raycon wireless earbuds. And that's why I decided to team up with Raycon. Go to buyraycon.com gold to save 15% on Raycons. Raycon's everyday earbuds look, feel, and sound better than ever. With optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit, these earbuds are so comfortable and they absolutely will not budge. Trust me, Raycons give you eight hours of playtime and 32 hours of battery life. Raycons are priced just right. You get the same high-quality audio at half the price of other premium audio brands. In particular, I really like the easy-to-use earbud tap functions, the noise isolation, and the awareness mode. But perhaps my favorite time to use my Raycons is in bed late at night when my wife's still asleep and I want to listen to a podcast or just stream a video. So go to buyraycon.com slash gold today to get 15% off your Raycon order. That's buyraycon.com slash gold to score 15% off. Buyraycon.com slash gold. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. And of course, it's not just consumers that continue to borrow and spend fueling inflation pressures, but the government continues to do the same thing. In fact, this week, for the first time, the national debt soared past $31 trillion. As I'm recording this podcast, the national debt is already $31 trillion. 129,000, making a beeline for 32 trillion. In fact, we added the last trillion in about eight months. I think we could tack on the next trillion in maybe five months. One of the reasons that the national debt is growing so rapidly is because the interest cost of servicing that debt is growing exponentially. And so this is really adding to the current budget deficits and compounding the impact on the national debt. And as the U.S. economy weakens, the government is going to see a reduction in its tax revenue. At the same time, it's going to see an increase in its expenditures. This always happens during a recession. And so that increases the national debt, which is the problem when it comes to fighting inflation, because as the Fed drives the economy deeper into recession with its feigned inflation fight, raising interest rates to fight inflation pushes the economy deeper into recession, which pushes the budget deficits up, but also higher interest rates in and of themselves make the budget deficits higher. And so these bigger budget deficits actually exert inflationary pressures in the economy because either the government has to borrow the money to finance the deficits from the private sector, crowding out private investment, reducing the supply of goods and services in the economy, pushing up prices, or the Fed has to pivot 
monetize those deficits, print even more money, creating even more inflation, and then that demand puts upward pressure on prices. So the Fed is in a situation where it can't fight inflation because by fighting inflation, it creates recession, which creates even more inflation because inflation is the only tool the Fed has to get us out of recession. See, what people don't seem to understand is the Fed's solution to every problem has been inflation. Whenever the country has gotten into trouble, whether it's a financial crisis, a recession, COVID-19, the Fed's solution has always been inflation. Well, now that inflation has become the problem, how can the Fed solve the problem of inflation with inflation? It can't. The Fed is out of magic tricks because inflation is the only trick up its sleeve. The Fed is a one-trick pony. Inflation is all it's got. All it can do is print money, lower interest rates. But now money printing and low interest rates have become the problem. And so now the Fed has no solution. And in fact, we keep getting more and more evidence that the Fed is losing its fight against inflation with all the price increases that continue to be observed and announced by U.S. companies. For example, Ford announced another price increase for its F1 Lightning pickup trucks. These are the electric trucks. They've already raised their prices during the year. They announced yet another price hike. And if you compare what they now propose to charge for the 2023 model, this is the base model, and compare it to the 2022 model, it's a 20% increase in a year. Now, that dwarfs the official increase in consumer prices. Ford is citing raw material costs, labor costs as the reason for the price increases. In addition, I've experienced on my own another example of price increases that far exceed what the government claims is happening in the CPI. I recently had to get a new insurance policy for my house in Connecticut. My prior carrier, for whatever reason, was no longer offering insurance in the area. I forget why. And so I had to shop around for another carrier. Now, the house has not changed at all in the last year. I didn't remodel it. I didn't add anything on. So I didn't do anything to increase the value of that house. Now, they had to inspect it in order to write the policy and give me a quote. And so when I got the quote back, it was a 38% increase in what I was paying the prior year on the exact same property. But making it worse, it wasn't that I just had to pay 38% more than I was paying before. The insurance company made a list of all the things that it wanted me to do to the house, spend money to install these added safety systems to make it less likely that the house would burn down or be hurt by a flood. So in other words, the insurance company wanted to mitigate its risk of actually having to pay me a claim, even though it was charging me 38% more than I was paying before. And by the way, I've owned that home for, I don't know, 11, 12 years. During the entire history of my ownership of that home, I have not submitted a single claim to any of the insurance companies that have insured me. So all of that insurance money was a waste. Now, of course, when you buy insurance, you hope it's a waste because you don't want bad things to happen. You buy the insurance just in case 
a bad thing happens. And so if no bad things happen, the insurance company wins. If something bad happens, then you win, not because you have something bad happen, but because now you have the insurance to help defray the cost. Now, I don't have insurance on my property in Puerto Rico. I did at one point before Hurricane Maria, and I ended up doing really well on that policy because I paid $10,000, I think, for a six-month policy, and then Maria hit a couple months later, and I put in like a $300,000 claim, and I got a check for the insurance company for about two hundred dollars because the deductible was about $100,000. But after I did that, my premium went up from $10,000 to like $40,000, and there was no way I was paying a premium that high, and so I decided to self-insure. And that saved me a lot of money because I haven't been paying those insurance premiums over the last four or five years. And I've had no damage whatsoever. So I banked a lot of money by self-insuring. And now if we actually get another hurricane, I saved more than enough money by not buying insurance to be able to cover the cost. But on my Connecticut home, I don't have the option of self-insuring because I have a mortgage on the Connecticut home. See, I didn't take out a mortgage on my home in Puerto Rico. The rates were a couple of hundred basis points higher here. And I also didn't want to go through the hassle of filling out all those forms. So I just paid cash for my house. But the house I have in Connecticut, I had a 30-year fixed rate mortgage at three and three eighths. And I've still got maybe close to 25 years remaining on that mortgage. There is no way... I am paying off a mortgage at three and three eighths. I'm keeping that mortgage for the next 25 years as long as I have that house. And one of the reasons I don't want to sell that house, apart from the fact that I really like it, but I'm rarely there, is that I don't want to give up that mortgage. The bank that's holding that mortgage is losing a lot of money. And in fact, they would probably pay me to sell my house to get out from under the liability of having to carry that three and three eighths mortgage for the next 25 years. That's part of the problem for a lot of these banks. They've written all these jumbo mortgages, they have them on their books, and now they're gonna be losing money on all these mortgages. Yeah, when the Federal Reserve had interest rates at zero, they were making money on the mortgage. That's why they issued it. But now they're losing money on the mortgage and they're gonna lose money on this mortgage every year until it is repaid. Now, because I have a mortgage, I am required to have insurance. I can't just self-insure like I'm doing with my Puerto Rico home that I own free and clear. I've got to have insurance and therefore I've got to pay this 38% increase, but I also have to spend money to make the improvements to my home that the insurance company is requiring. So the actual increase is a lot more than 38% when you factor in this extra money. Now, of course, none of that shows up in the CPI, the extra money that I'm being required to spend. I don't even know how much of this increase in the insurance premium would go into the CPI. But the reason that the insurance premium is 38% higher is because it would cost the insurance company about 40% more to replace my house if it was completely destroyed. Because after they appraised my house, they calculated how much money it would take to replace it. And it was 40% more than what I had it insured for before. 
Why is that? It's the same house. I haven't done anything to it. It's because the increase in raw material prices, the increase in labor costs means it's 40% more expensive to rebuild my house than it would have been to rebuild the same house a year ago. That is massive inflation. I'm not even sure I could sell my house for 40% more than I could a year ago. In fact, I'm certain that I can't. It's just that the cost of building homes is rising faster than the market value of those homes. That's one of the reasons that I've been saying that home construction is going to grind to a halt because you can't cover the cost of building in the market because mortgage rates are now too high for people to afford to buy homes. Now, my house is a higher end home, so probably more people buying my type of home may not use a mortgage. They may go and pay all cash, but a lot of the higher end buyers may not have as much cash to buy these expensive homes because the stock market is tanked and they've lost money in other areas. Their wealth is going down. And so maybe they don't have the money to buy these expensive homes. And so the prices are not keeping pace with the increase in the cost of replacing them. So now I've got to pay this huge premium to insure my house for a value that is actually higher than what I could sell my house for. Mint Mobile offers premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month. And now for the plot twist. Nope, there isn't one. Seriously, Mint Mobile just has premium wireless from 15 bucks a month. There's no trapping you into a two-year contract or opening a bill to find all those crazy fees. And there's no luring you in with free subscriptions to streaming services that you'll forget to cancel and be charged full price for. No, there's none of that. In fact, once I canceled a service that I had with a major wireless provider, I didn't have a contract and I only found out that they kept billing me for a service that I wasn't even using after they had turned over an unpaid balance that they had been billing to a credit card I had long since canceled to a collection agency that was really screwing up my credit. Mint Mobile gives you the best rates, whether you're buying just for yourself or your entire family. And at Mint Mobile, families start at just two lines. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. So switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. That's right. Get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month and no unexpected plot twists at mintmobile.com slash gold. That's mintmobile.com slash gold. Seriously, you'll make your wallet very happy at mintmobile.com slash gold. But perhaps the worst inflation news on the week came out of OPEC, which announced during the week that they plan on decreasing oil production by 2 million barrels per day. And this helps send the price of oil up by 16.5% on the week. It rose better than $4 a barrel on Friday alone. It closed the week at $92.64 a barrel. That is 16.5% higher than the $79.50 it closed the previous Friday. And if you look at the chart, I think we're going to be back above $100 a barrel in oil very quickly. All of this, of course, infuriating President Biden. Gas prices are now going to be moving up into the midterm elections that are now just one month away. Biden is panicking. 
He's announced that he's going to dump another 10 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is already at its lowest level since 1984. But to put those 10 million barrels into perspective, if OPEC is going to reduce production by 2 million barrels a day, all Biden is doing is offsetting five days of that reduction. So none of this is going to make a difference other than to put America in a far more vulnerable position if we ever actually had a supply shock in oil. But it's not going to be enough to deter the upward momentum in gas prices that I think is going to continue now up until the election. And I think one of the reasons that we've seen a bit of an increase in the president's popularity is because of that decrease in gas prices. But since gas prices are probably going to be rising from now up till Election Day, that is going to undermine that improvement. And I think that may, in fact, put the United States Senate in play, because as of now, most people assume that the Democrats will retain control of the U.S. Senate, though they will most likely lose control of the House of Representatives. Well, if gas prices continue to move higher between now and Election Day, and we have some other bad news, which we probably will, and the stock market continues to fall, which it probably will, we may actually have the Republicans not only win the House, but win it by a wider margin and, in fact, take back control of the United States Senate, which is right now 50-50. So they only need net to pick up one Senate seat and they gain control. And while I think the betting odds still favor the Democrats staying in control, based on what I think is likely to happen over the next 30 days, I think we could end up seeing the Republicans upsetting and controlling both houses of Congress. Now, in addition to selling oil from the Strategic Reserve, another harebrained scheme that apparently is under consideration in the Biden administration is an export ban on U.S. oil and natural gas. And this would be a disaster. It would backfire. The idea is that if we keep all of our oil and gas here, that will keep a lid on prices. After all, we can't export it, and so there's going to be more supply domestically and therefore lower prices. And while that is true, keeping all of our oil and gas for ourselves will mean that oil and gas prices will go down. It's going to have the opposite effect on the price of just about everything else, which will go up. And the reason is that America currently pays for a lot of its imports by exporting oil and gas. And so if we can't export our oil and gas, how do we pay for our imports? We can't. We have to borrow more. The trade deficit goes higher. And what does a higher trade deficit mean? It means that the dollar will be lower than it otherwise would have been. And interest rates, particularly longer term interest rates, will be higher than they otherwise would have been. And so the net effect is a weaker dollar and higher interest rates, which are a consequence of larger trade deficits. And that means that overall consumer prices go up. So sure, we may be able to buy gas a little cheaper, but those gains will be offset because we end up having to spend more money because the price of everything else goes up. Also, when it comes to higher inflation, I thought another interesting piece of news on the week was the United Nations coming out and warning the nations of the world that they had better stop raising interest rates because it threatened to push the global economy into recession. Of course, where was the United Nations 
when central banks were slashing interest rates to zero or holding them in negative territory and launching quantitative easing programs? Why wasn't the U.N. warning about the dangers of that? Why didn't the U.N. tell governments and central banks to stop printing money and to stop artificially suppressing interest rates because it was going to unleash massive inflation. They were silent. They were nowhere to be seen. It seems that the only thing they're worried about is central banks causing recession. They couldn't give a damn if those same central banks caused inflation. But the reality is if they're worried about the poor, which it seems that they are, the poor suffer more from inflation than they do from recession. So if the central banks actually follow the advice of the United Nation and decide to stop fighting inflation in order to prevent recession, the very people that they claim to be championing are the very people who will be the most negatively impacted by the inflation that will result. Also, when it comes to employment, we got some additional data that was more forward-looking than the non-farm payroll report that suggests more weakness in the labor market. First of all, on Thursday, the day before we got the non-farm payroll number, Challenger Job Cut report came out, and it showed 29,989 job cuts for September. That was about a 50% increase in the number of cuts during the prior month. And then I just read an article yesterday that surveyed CEOs and it found that 50% of the CEOs were considering layoffs during the next six months. But I want to finish up today's podcast by circling back and talking about what happened in the markets during the week, particularly on Friday, where the stock markets really got clobbered not only because of that jobs report that showed the decline in the unemployment rate, but we got earnings that came out of advanced micro devices that were released after Thursday's close that really set the tone for the markets because that disappointing earnings report sent shares of AMD tumbling. They only opened down maybe about 5 or 6% below the prior day close. But by the end of the day, AMD shares were off nearly 14% on the day, closing at a new 52-week low. In fact, the stock is now down 65% from its high. But to put its current price into perspective, AMD is still up 5x over the last five years. So the stock still has a long way to fall. And so do a lot of other high-flying stocks in the market. In fact, as I said to be the podcast, the Dow got beaten up on the day. It was down about 2% on Friday, though on the week, it was still up 2% thanks to those huge gains on Monday and Tuesday. Same story for the S&P 500. It was down 2.8% on Friday but still managed to finish the week with a 1.5% gain. The big loser on Friday was the NASDAQ composite, down 3.9%, but still managed a 0.7% rise on the week. The Russell 2000 also down 2.9% on Friday and up 3% though on the week. That was the biggest gainer of any of the indexes. But if you take a look at the more speculative tech stocks, I always like to talk about the Kathy Wood, 
ARK Innovation ETF, ARKK. That ETF got hammered by 6.6% on Friday alone, completely erasing its gains on the week. ARK closed down a half a percent on the week and pretty much mirroring the performance of ARK was the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust that seemed for a while it was more correlated with the S&P. Well, now it's back in correlation with the ARK Fund. It dropped 5% on the day and was down a half a percent on the week. Bitcoin itself also had a rough week. As I'm recording this podcast on Saturday morning, Bitcoin is trading at around 19500 It has been completely unable to sustain any move above 20,000. A lot of people think 20,000 is support. I think we're setting it up to become resistance. I think the support is going to cave. And Bitcoin is very close to a major collapse. It has avoided one so far. That has created a lot of false hope on the part of the hodlers that the bottom is in. Well, rather than forming a bottom, we're actually carving out a top. The bottom is a long way down. In fact, crypto was in the news this week because the SEC announced that it was fining Kim Kardashian $1.2 million for touting a cryptocurrency on Twitter. Now, the SEC regards this particular cryptocurrency as a security And so that's how it's able to claim jurisdiction to impose the fine. The rule that Kim Kardashian violated was she didn't disclose the exact dollar amount of the payment that she received for this tweet. She did disclose on Twitter that the tweet was, in fact, an ad. So anyone paying attention to the hashtag knew that she was being paid. They just didn't know exactly how much. Well, it was $250,000. The $1.2 million fine, of course, is much higher than what she received as payment. But what really stood out in my mind is not so much that the SEC is imposing this fine. And as far as Kim Kardashian is concerned, who is a billionaire, this amounts to a parking ticket. What really bothers me is that what Kim Kardashian did with this tweet is nothing compared to what the bigger crypto pumpers like a Michael Saylor do every single day. And Michael Saylor has a much bigger vested interest in the success of crypto than Kim Kardashian. All she had was $250,000 paycheck. I mean, that's pocket change for Kim Kardashian. But Michael Saylor has got billions riding on the success of Bitcoin. He is pumping Bitcoin nonstop every day. And he is encouraging people to go out and borrow money to buy Bitcoin, take out mortgages against their homes, take on credit card debt. This is reckless and irresponsible and is doing far more damage than a Kim Kardashian tweet. And it's not just Michael Saylor. There's so many other people who are in the crypto industry that are constantly out there talking their books, touting cryptocurrencies with all sorts of pie-in-the-sky representations about how rich everybody's going to be if they buy crypto or Bitcoin, downplaying the downside risk that comes with owning cryptocurrencies. Now, of course, when I criticized Michael Saylor 
and of course CNBC for doing the same thing. They take all sorts of money from crypto advertisers and then have crypto guests on their network touting cryptocurrencies. There's no real counterbalance. There's hardly a negative voice heard on that network when it comes to Bitcoin or crypto. So the whole thing is a giant pump and dump, yet crickets from the SEC regarding that or any of these other players. And what a lot of people pointed out to me is that Bitcoin is not a security. Bitcoin is a commodity. And so you can say whatever you want about Bitcoin and the SEC doesn't have any jurisdiction to impose a fine. And while that may be true, my criticism is not that the SEC is fining Kim Kardashian and not fining Michael Saylor. My criticism is that we're focusing attention on the Kim Kardashians as if she's the only one that's doing something wrong. And we're completely excusing the other people who are out there pumping and dumping Bitcoin, even if it's not a security. I think what's going on is still fraud. And even if the SEC doesn't have jurisdiction, there are still laws against fraud. And while Bitcoin may not technically be a security, MicroStrategy certainly is. And there may well be things that Michael Saylor is doing on behalf of MicroStrategy that could fall within the jurisdiction of the SEC. Also, the U.S. government does have jurisdiction to prosecute people for running pyramid schemes or chain letters. Those are illegal. And just because your chain letter is on a blockchain doesn't necessarily change the nature of what's going on. All of these schemes are still frauds, and it is still possible for the Justice Department to go after the perpetrators of those frauds. Now, I'm sure they will once everything collapses and everybody loses all their money. Yeah, that's exactly what they're going to do. They're not going to go after the fraudsters before everybody loses their money. No, they're going to wait until after everybody loses all their money, and then they're going to do something. Of course, as soon as I criticize Michael Saylor for pumping Bitcoin, I get all sorts of trolls on Twitter accusing me of being a hypocrite because they say, hey, Peter, you do the same thing with gold. You're out there pumping gold. So what's the difference between my advocating gold and Michael Saylor's advocacy of Bitcoin? Well, there is a huge difference. Number one, when I am selling gold, I'm not selling anybody my gold. Right? I'm just acting as a middleman. I go buy the gold wholesale and resell it retail. So I'm not pumping and dumping any of the gold that I own. I'm just encouraging other people to do the same thing that I've done, which is to also buy gold and silver. I'm not selling them my gold and silver. I'm just helping them accumulate gold and silver on their own. Now, I'm buying the gold and silver from the wholesaler. And so it's their gold that's getting sold, not mine. Now, some people will say, well, but Michael Saylor isn't selling any of his own Bitcoin. But a lot of other people who are out pumping Bitcoin are selling their Bitcoin. In fact, just about everybody who's pumping crypto has crypto to sell. That's how the people in the cryptocurrency have gotten so rich. They've created all these cryptocurrencies out of thin air, and then they pumped them up. They've created demand, and they've gotten rich selling people the tokens that they're touting. 
But even if Michael Saylor isn't actually selling any of his own Bitcoin, he's still trying to artificially pump up the value of the Bitcoin that he owns because he is one of the largest holders of Bitcoin. And it doesn't take that much buying to move the needle to make all the Bitcoin that he has more valuable, especially since he's borrowed a lot of money against that Bitcoin collateral and he needs the collateral to stay high so that he doesn't get hit with a margin call. There's a big difference between Michael Saylor pumping up Bitcoin and me advocating gold. I have no impact on the price of gold. No matter what I say, no matter how many people listen to me and buy gold, it is not going to make a difference to the price of gold because it's a huge liquid market and whatever I am doing is spit in the ocean. But Michael Saylor has a major impact on what happens in Bitcoin. And when he convinces people to buy Bitcoin, that absolutely has an impact on the price. And when he convinces people to hodl their Bitcoin rather than sell it, that influences price. And when he encourages people to go out and borrow money and take on debt to buy Bitcoin, I have never once encouraged anybody to borrow money to buy gold. In fact, I have discouraged people from doing that because of the risk. In contrast, Michael Saylor is advocating people take on debt to buy Bitcoin, even though Bitcoin is far riskier than gold. The odds of Bitcoin crashing by 50% or more are significantly higher than that happening to the price of gold. Yet I refuse to advocate leverage to buy gold, yet Michael Saylor is indiscriminately advising everybody to take on leverage to buy Bitcoin. Now, turning my attention from fool's gold, aka Bitcoin, to actual gold, the yellow metal had a pretty good week. Despite a $17 loss or so on Friday, gold was still up about 30 bucks on the week. We did close just below 1700 I think it was 1696 but that was a 1.8% gain on the week. Silver also had an even stronger week despite being down about 30 cents on Friday. It closed the week up about a buck, which is almost 6% higher on the week. And so I think gold and silver are looking good. I think it still looks likely that the lows are in and we're headed for new highs on both those metals. In fact, the gold and silver mining stocks that got beaten up very badly on Friday still managed to close the week in the black. The GDX was down 4.9% on Friday, but up 1% on the week. The GDXJ was down 5.2% on Friday, but finished the week with a 2% gain. In fact, if you look at the GDXJ from last week's low to this week's high, there was a 25% rally. That's an entire bull market that took place within the week. And we've already had our first correction because we're now almost 10% below that high. The GDXJ closed the week 16% above last week's low. But I think we've likely seen the lows in that index. And we are, in fact, in a new bull market. And what we've just seen is a correction in that bull market. And I think Friday's decline was overdone because I think gold and silver stocks got caught up in the sell-off in the overall market. Yes, the price of gold was down, 
but it was only down by about 1% on the day. And so I think a five percentage point plunge in the mining stocks was overdone. And I would expect to see a lot of that damage reversed next week. The real key, though, to a bull market in gold and the mining stocks is going to be a divergence between the stock market and gold. What I'd like to see to be even more bullish on gold is a big down day in the stock market, maybe even on Monday. I keep talking about the potential for a Black Monday, and so far we haven't had one. We'll see what happens this Monday, but to see a big down day in the stock market, but a big up day in gold at the same time, and then an even bigger up day in the gold and silver mining stocks. To see that type of divergence would be a strong indication that investors are waking up to reality, and if they are, that's great news for gold and even better news for the miners. What was also significant about the gain in gold and even larger gain in silver. And by the way, silver continues to outperform gold on a relative basis, which as I pointed out in a prior podcast is a very bullish sign, but gold and silver both managed to rise on the week despite the rise in the US dollar. Now the US dollar got beaten up pretty good on Monday and Tuesday, but it was able to recover all of those losses by Friday and end the week up about half a percent. U.S. dollar index closed at 112.75. The prior week, it closed at 112.12. So strength in the dollar would typically portend weakness in gold and silver, but gold and silver went the other way. Also, gold and silver prices shrugged off the rise in treasury yields and went higher anyway. Rising yields have been a headwind for gold, but not this week because gold and silver managed to defy that headwind. Now, I think one of the most significant developments during the week was that the yield on a 30-year U.S. Treasury finally hit a new high for the move. In fact, the yield on the 30-year is the only maturity that hit a new high. Even though all maturities moved higher, only the 30-year hit a new high. Now, it's still lower than the yield on a 10-year. So we still have an inverted yield curve from the 10 to the 30, but that inversion has narrowed. And I think we're going to start to see a bigger move up in the 30-year yield. You're going to start to see a normalization and a steepening of that yield curve. And what that would show is investors are starting to realize that inflation is not going away. Inflation is here to stay. Remember, the yield on a 30-year treasury is still below 4%, even though current inflation is above 8%. And what that tells you is that bond investors don't believe high inflation is here to stay. Otherwise, they wouldn't be willing to loan money for 30 years at less than 4%. But as they are forced to come to the realization that that's not true, that it's the low inflation of the prior decade that's never coming back, that the high inflation that we've got now is here to stay, that this is in fact the new normal, then bonds have to be completely repriced to reflect that reality. And that means a significant increase in long-term interest rates. And that has major ramifications for the entirety of the U.S. economy which over the last decade has been totally reoriented and built around the idea that interest rates are going to stay low forever. 
that that was the new normal. It was not. It was an aberration. And now we're going back to normal, only the norm now in a reality of massive debt and money printing is not only are we going to return to high inflation, but we're going to return to much higher inflation than we had before. In fact, the decade of the 1970s, which up until now has been known as the decade of inflation, the decade that we're currently in is going to have more inflation than the 1970s, even though we're not even measuring it as honestly as we were back then. By the end of this decade, even the official inflation numbers that are being reported will exceed the official inflation numbers that were reported in the 70s. But if the official inflation numbers are higher than the 1970s, that means the actual inflation rate that is underlying the economy and which confronts ordinary Americans is going to be significantly higher, if not double the levels of the 1970s. And that is going to be a disaster for the bond market and an even bigger disaster for the economy.